Stay hungry, stay foolish. Adapt or perish, now as ever, is nature's inexorable imperative. H.G. Wells, 1922. The internet had a world-changing impact over 20 years from 1994 to 2014. In the next 10 years, change will happen even faster. As Hillary Clinton's senior advisor for innovation, today's guest traveled nearly a million miles to 41 countries, the equivalent of two round trips to the moon. From refugee camps in the Congo and Syrian war zones to visiting the world's most powerful people in business and government, his travels amounted to a four-year masterclass in the changing nature of innovation. In his book, The Industries of the Future, he distills his observations on the forces that are changing the world. He highlights the best opportunities for progress and explains how countries thrive or sputter. He examines the specific fields that will most shape our economic future over the next 10 years, including robotics, artificial intelligence, the commercialization of genomics, cybercrime, and the impact of digital technology. Blending storytelling and economic analysis, he answers questions on how we will need to adapt and gives us a vivid and informed perspective on how sweeping global trends are affecting the ways we live now and tomorrow. We welcome technology policy expert, startup advisor, former Obama administration advisor, former senior advisor of innovation to Secretary Clinton, former Baltimore school teacher and New York Times best-selling author of The Industries of the Future, Alec Ross. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And my goodness, the way you introduced me, it's like my mother was introducing me. Thanks so much. <laughs> very generous of you. Very good to be on your show. How are you? I'm very good, man. I'll have to work on the masculinity of my voice then. Uh, no, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show, Alec. I really enjoyed this book. It's so timely. And I know it's a couple of years old now, but it's more timely than ever. And it's great to see somebody with such a diverse background that's worked in government and forcing change and informing change as is needed so much in the public sector. Well, you're nice to say that. You know, it's funny, when I first wrote The Industries of the Future, when I was getting into it, some of it felt sort of Star Trekky, a little bit like science fiction. And my goodness, it's all actually happening now. Absolutely. And you know, Alec, that's one of the problems, isn't it? That people still think this is so far away from happening, but it's upon us and it's happening in the background silently all over the world. That's exactly right. I mean, look, I grew up in coal country, coal mines and the hills of a place in the United States called West Virginia. And I saw really close up what it means if you don't adapt, if you don't modernize, the world goes on around you. I mean, the world will keep spinning and keep modernizing and keep changing. And if you just sort of sit there and close your eyes and ball your fists up and try to continue to do things the way you've always done them, the world will leave you behind. I mean, where I grew up, again, in those hills of coal country, it's like stepping back in a history book, but not in a particularly nice history book. You know, people are poor, people are struggling, people are angry. And it's because of the unwillingness to recognize how fast and how ferocious the changes in the world, driven by globalization, driven by changes in technology, driven by changes in science. And you can get ahead of it or it can leave you behind. 
Yeah, and you set the scene of the book exactly that way with your summer job as a midnight janitor. But due to globalization, this was a must-have jobs for other people who used to work in coal mines. Coal mines used to be, in order to get the coal out of the mountain, you sent a man down with a shovel. And now you've got machines that do the work of thousands of men. So all of those coal miners had to end up doing other work. And so me growing up in that world, you know, when I was working as a midnight janitor, literally mopping up sick after uh, people had had too much to drink after going to concerts, you know, I was a kid at going to university at the time. But the people working alongside me, a lot of them were men in their 40s and 50s who otherwise would have been down in the mines with their union wage job, who had been left behind by the changes. And so for them, they had no other choice. You use that to introduce the concept of automation, and you start the robot conversation with the facts that you discovered firsthand about Japan's aging population, where 25% of Japan's population is age 65 or older and reached 39% by 2050. Yeah, it's fascinating. There are 196 countries on planet Earth, 196. The country with the world's oldest living citizens is Japan. The average life expectancy for women is now about 83. For men, it's about 80. And that's fairly old. And then you've got this you know, huge percentage of the population above the age of 65, no longer working, anti-immigration policies, and not enough grandchildren. So you've got all of these older people without the grandchildren or the low-wage help to help them as they grow older. And here you introduce the robots, Robina and Asimo. It'd be great, Alec, if you'd share that with our audience. Yeah, two of the stranger things I've ever encountered in my life are what are called in Japan called elder care robots. And that's exactly what it sounds like. So if you think about elder care right now, who's taking care of that frail 85-year-old grandmother today? Well, it's usually a, a, a daughter or a granddaughter. Maybe it's some immigrant help, some low-cost help, somebody who flew in from, who's living there from Eastern Europe, something like that. Well, in Japan, there aren't enough children and grandchildren. There aren't enough immigrants or otherwise low-cost help. And so they've literally created elder care robots. And so Asimo and Robina are two examples of this. And what you think about, well, what is a robot going to do for older people? Well, it, it's everything from helping lift people out of a bathtub to playing the violin to entertain them. It's fairly remarkable. And for me, it was a little disturbing. Some people love it. Some people find it frightening. It has been remarkable to learn about it and actually see it not in a movie, but in real life. And I found it really fascinating that you talk about the ancient Shinto religion practiced by 80% of Japanese, and that religion includes the belief of animism. And I thought it would be interesting to share this because here in the West, we see an inanimate object as an inanimate object. It's a machine. But in Japan, they believe that objects have souls as well. No, that's right. I mean, look, my father's in his 80s, my mother's in her late 70s, and if I were to imagine 10 years from now, having a robot take care of them, that, that seems almost cruel and inhumane to me. It seems like I, actually I would be a bad son to allow something like that to happen. But the Japanese have a very different cultural bias. So in the West, 
where we are rooted in sort of traditional Judeo-Christian values. We're taught that these are, in fact, machines. They are soulless. But in a lot of Eastern religions, including Shinto, which, as you mentioned, is practiced by about 80% of Japanese people, it holds that every object has a soul, the rocks on the ground, uh, robots, and say they don't have the cultural hangups that we do in the West around things like robotics. And so where you might feel terribly to have a robot playing the violin to your older grandparents or parents in the United States or in Ireland or somewhere, with a different set of cultural values that can be reversed. What I found really interesting from from your research that China, Japan, and Korea, for example, all felt that the West got ahead of them with the internet, that they've stolen the march in the innovation or the next wave or the next industrial revolution, but they are not going to let that happen when it comes to robotics and maybe artificial intelligence as well. Over 90% of the robots in the world come from just five countries. Uh, Two are in the West, Germany and the United States, but the other big three are Japan, South Korea, and China. In the way in which in the West we view automation and robotics, as being more of a threat. In the Far East, it's viewed a bit as more of an opportunity, and they've aligned their resources as such. And there is a bit of a race, at least between the United States and China now. We've gone from a world with a Cold War to a Code War, where in areas including artificial intelligence, there's sort of a competition to see who is going to be the master of the industries of the future. And in artificial intelligence and in robotics, the Chinese in particular have proven willing to spend an almost infinite amount of money and to have a really sharp strategy. You see the robotics industry being akin to the internet as it was maybe 20 years ago. We're in the infancy of where it's going to go. Part of why I wrote The Industries of the Future is I graduated from university in 1994. In 1994, 25 years ago from today, was a fascinating time. It's when the internet as we know it became real. Things like the web browser, e-commerce, search engines, all of those came about right around the same time when I was graduating from university 25 years ago. And I feel like today, we're at another one of those moments And I wrote The Industries of the Future because I wish 25 years ago I had read a book where somebody had said, hey, there's this thing called the internet, and here's how it's going to change communication. Here's how it's going to change commerce. Here's how it's going to change how we get and share information. So I wrote The Industries of the Future because I do believe that in fields from artificial intelligence to robotics to other fields that we'll talk about, It's like where we were 25 years ago. It's sort of chapter one, page one, for something where we're going to rewrite history. It's a fascinating time, and it brings promise, and it brings peril. You know, I'm not a utopian. I'm not a dystopian. It brings good, and it's bad. But part of what I'm hoping with, you know, the industries of the future is that people understand a little bit about how, if you understand the world to come, How do you maximize the promise and how do you minimize the peril of the changes to come? 
And if you don't understand it, it's like you're surfing. You're in the water and you're just hoping you get drifted in the right direction. And you mentioned at the start that to a lot of people who even pick up your book, even though it's a New York Times bestseller, many people feel it's sci-fi or it's too distant in the future. And it's one of the objections I always get when I talk about AI or I talk about any type of genomics or anything. People are kind of going, oh, that's way in the future. That's not going to affect my business. It already is. And one of the ones that is kind of topical, more than robotics, certainly in the West, is autonomous vehicles and self-driving cars, etc. It'd be great to share your findings in that realm. I'll tell a quick story that does not reflect well on me, but I'll tell it anyway. When I first heard about a driverless car, I was like, all right, this is too far. A car that drives itself? Impossible. And at the time, this was a few years ago, everybody called it the Google car because it was the fellows over at Google who were developing this. And I was at an event and the founders of Google were there. And I know them a bit. And I went up to them and I said, fellas, a driverless car, this is impossible. And they convinced me to come to campus and do a bit of a demo. And I got to campus and I got in the car, got in the back seat, put on my seatbelt. There was no driver in the front seat. The car had no steering wheel. And it began driving. And at first, it felt like a bit of a car ride at a carnival. You know, the kind of, you know, I've got these kids and three kids. And it reminded me of sort of the car ride you take for a euro or two at an amusement park in the parking lot. And I was like, oh, they've spent billions of euro on a kiddie ride. But then the car pulled out of the parking lot. It went on the road and it drove to the, onto the highway. 40 kilometers an hour, 50 kilometers an hour, 60 kilometers an hour, 80 kilometers an hour. And I got to tell you, I was thinking about my kids again. And I was like, somebody's going to die. Either I'm going to die or somehow I'm going to survive and I'm going to kill the Google guys. And we got onto this, you know, scary highway in California, Highway 101, five lanes. Remember, I'm in the back seat. Nobody's in the front seat. There's no driver. There's no steering wheel. And I'm freaking out. I mean, thank goodness there's no video camera in the car. I just Let's just say it wasn't my most masculine moment. <laughs> you, can all, you, you can only be so scared for so long. And after like six or seven minutes, I'm like, oh, my God, it works. It works. And eventually we looped around, went back to the Google campus. But all of this is to say that the idea of an autonomous vehicle is not a hypothetical based on a theoretical based on a maybe. It's already happening. I mean, beer is already being delivered in the United States on 18-wheel trucks going from the bottling factory to the warehouse. Uh, the question now is, you know, less technological but more regulatory. Um, you know, how are we going to manage these things? We know what to do if a, if a driver makes a mistake and gets in a mistake, but what do we do if an algorithm makes a mistake? And And, you know... I think that this is going back to my earlier point about there being both good and bad with this change. I think it's good in that we won't let these things on the road unless they are substantially safer than human drivers. But it's bad in that think about the millions of people who make an income and a pretty good income, by the way, who don't require university degrees driving a vehicle. And now imagine a world where that job isn't available anymore. So this is a, the autonomous vehicle. What you think is going to happen in 20 or 30 years is going to happen, I believe, in five years. And it's going to happen with some real ferocity in the marketplace.
Disruptive is an overused word, but I, I do think this is going to be disruptive. We as humans, we're really resistant to change, and it's really hard to wrap our head around all the changes that this will mean. I don't even say might mean. But you also say 1.3 million people die every year in car crashes, so we, we know that. But also there's 2.5 million people in the U.S. alone who earn their living this way. Then you look at an aging population. There's going to be more people alive they will need money. They would have relied on the gig economy in the past, maybe driving an Uber, maybe driving a taxi. Certainly in, in the Europe, that would be the way. And they are all going to be gone. There's going to be more people alive because there's less people dying. This is going to cause new problems that we're not ready for. That's right. And look, this is why I think we need a new social contract. I mean, what's a social contract? A social contract is that which defines the relationship between government, citizen, and corporation. And in Europe and the United States, we've had basically two major forms of social contract in the last several hundred years. You know, during the agricultural age when there was feudalism, the work week was six days a week, you know, taking off only Sunday, the day of our Lord. And the work day was any number of uh, however many hours of sunlight there was, those were the working hours. The social contract then was, you know, the peasants, the, the low-income people lived on the, the land of the lords. The lords held the lands for the nobility, all in exchange for taxes, for a share of the crops and other such things. But then with the onset of industrialization and the migration of labor from farm to factory, from country to city, we needed a new social contract. And that's where things like the minimum wage, the 40-hour work week, the five-day work week, free public education until you're 18 years old, a pension, child labor laws, all of these were part of a new social contract that came with industrialization. We're now moving from industrialization into an entirely new kind of economy, one that's technology-rich and knowledge-based. And in a world where people are increasingly living to be 90 years old, but they don't necessarily have pensions because instead of having one job for 30 years, they've had 30 jobs in 30 years. The old industrial age programs, the old industrial age social contract doesn't hold anymore. So big picture, what we need to really make it for the next 30, 40 years in the 21st century is a new social contract, an entirely new relationship between corporations, between government and between citizens. Yeah, and we don't have enough Alec Rosses in government or in government policy or pushing regulation or even examining it and traveling like you did and ministers of innovation, etc. But moving on from robotics and from autonomous vehicles, you say the last trillion dollar industry is built on a code of ones and zeros. The next will be built on our own genetic code. Let's talk about your research in genomic technology and curing and detecting cancer, for example. Sure. You know, my, I live in Baltimore, Maryland. And one of the wonderful things about Baltimore, Maryland is a, a local university called Johns Hopkins with one of the finest medical institutions in the world. And what I've learned in the labs of Johns Hopkins is exactly as you said, the world's last trillion dollar industry was built out of computer code and the world's next trillion dollar industry is going to be built out of genetic code. The day I was born, I'm not very old, I, I don't think, I'm in my 40s. The day I was born, life ex, global life expectancy was 58. Today, it's 71. 
how does global life expectancy continue on that trajectory from 58 to 71 into the 80s? Well, the way it does it is through the commercialization of genomics, by which I mean that you're able to do things like diagnose cancer at one one hundredth the size of what can be detected by an MRI. You know, right now I go to the doctor every year for a checkup. They take a vial of blood and they check for things like cholesterol level. It's increasingly the case, though, that people are now getting the genetic material uh, in their in their blood measured, and you're able to di- to identify cancerous cells early in stage one, as opposed to the stages three and four that they're routinely found in now. And it makes fighting cancer a lot easier. The combination of being able to address diseases more precisely combined with personalized medicines, I think, is going to change medicine as we know it. And will make the kind the way that healthcare and medicine is practiced today look primitive by comparison in 30 years. Yeah, and that personalization goes to a dark side as well. And you talk about the genomics of designer babies, for example. That's exactly right. I mean, the same technology that can be used to figure out, to do genetic repair and say, oh my goodness, this individual has a 12% genetic predisposition to Parkinson's. We are now, while that child is still in utero, we are going to repair the damaged proteins and engage at the at the DNA level to decrease the probability of that child getting Parkinson's from 12% to 2%. We'd feel good about that, right? Oh yeah, if there are things that you can do, you know, to decrease the likelihood of my getting Parkinson's from 12% to 2%, do it. But I asked a doctor um, at Johns Hopkins, I'm like, what's the downside of this? And he goes, designer babies. He goes, sure, everybody's in favor of reducing the likelihood that you could get Parkinson's. But what if you're able to tell the parent, oh, yeah, this is going to be a, a kid with brown eyes. And the parents say, well, can we make the eyes blue? They say, oh, yeah, he'll be a little bit below average height. They say, oh, well, are there things we can do to make him a little above average height? The answer to those questions is yes. And the ability to manipulate our DNA, which we are beginning to see take place now, but which, like everything else in computing, will accelerate on a nonlinear basis. We can have designer babies in the next five to 10 years. And we've already seen a willingness of humans to hack their bodies, whether it's getting tattoos or whether getting nose jobs or Botox. Um, there is precedent for saying, all right, the bodies we're born with are things that we can also change. And if we are able to change things about our children before they've even been born, you know that there will be people who won't want to do that. So, Alec, you give loads of examples of genomics, robotics, and automation, but let's shift our attention to further work you did, which was the codification of money, markets, and trust. You did lots of research here, including interviews with Jack Dorsey of Square and the founder of Twitter. And what Jack says is one of the reasons he started the company Square is the trend towards more local experiences. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny. In a world of globalization, I feel like people want things that are more local than ever before. I know I do. I mean, I want my fruit and vegetables to come from farms 
not from the other side of the United States, but to come sourced locally. And a world of all of these conglomerates, I actually like buying local and buying from small businesses. But the invention of Square actually came because, you know, it's a bit of a nightmare for small businesses historically to use things like Visa and MasterCard. And Square was invented to take the capabilities that existed inside bigger grocery stores and bring them to smaller merchants and enabling uh, payments, enabling the exchange of value between people in a way that previously would have been quite difficult. And here you say, for context, approximately 40 billion is sent to communities in Africa from families abroad. And in some countries, remittances comprise as much as a third of GDP. Any of us who have traveled around the world, if you travel in the Middle East, if you travel throughout much of Europe or the United States, you see people from all over the world, including Sri Lanka, India, Africa. And what are they doing? They're going to where the work is. And, you know, the wife, the children, the family members stay back home. And the way that they really make it is through remittances. You know, you make money working on a construction site and you send it back to the home country. And the terrible thing historically is that something like t- up to 25% of the wages can be lost sending that money from a part of the developed world back to the developing world. A whole lot of stuff falls off the back of the truck. And one of the nice things about the creation of these more efficient digital marketplaces is the money can go from Dublin to Lesotho a lot more efficiently. You're not going to lose 20% falling off the back of the truck off, you know, as you go to the money wiring services and what have you. Uh, who'll get you on both sides of it. And so this is, this is a case of how develop, how developing technologies can actually be of great benefit to the developing world. I thought it was really interesting though. One of the things you said that with soldiers, that oftentimes their pay was in cash from the government, but oftentimes generals would steal the cash and the soldiers would often go months or weeks without pay. Yeah, it was a crazy story. And this goes back to when I was working for Hillary Clinton. When I was working for Hillary Clinton and she was the Secretary of State, I was sent out to East Congo, one of the tougher places in the world. And one of the things we were trying to deal with was all of the corruption in the local military. I mean, the military was just shaking everybody down for money. And we were trying to understand why is it these soldiers are just absolutely wrecking havoc out there. And part of what we came to learn is because they were never getting paid. And they were never getting paid because the way they were supposed to get paid is banknotes. Literally, the old physical paper banknotes were put on a plane from Kinshasa and flown to the east of Congo. So from the capital to the east, which, by the way, is about the distance between Frankfurt and Dublin. And when the bank, when the plane would land, the generals would take most of the money. The colonels would then take a fair amount of it, and very little of it actually got to the foot soldiers. And so what we did is we created an an electronic payment system based on mobile phones. Mobile phones are everywhere, even in the East Congo. And we said instead, we created a system so that instead of people having to be paid by banknote, it just showed up on their phone, and it helped substantially reduce corruption. Now, it made a lot of corrupt generals very angry, but too bad. (laughs) 
you know, and, and yeah, and this was based on something we first did in Afghanistan, where in Afghanistan, the soldiers were being paid by cash, and they would then leave for a week every time they got paid, because it was a long walk back to their village. And they would literally walk for three days back to the village, drop off the banknotes, rest a day, then walk the three days back. And so we first put that mobile payments program in place in Afghanistan. So people can just be paid through their cell phones or send money to the village through their cell phones without requiring a three-day walk. There's a resistance, and obviously those generals are going to be resistant, but there's resistance a lot of times from governments to digital currencies. But you see it as positive in the long run. You see it more as becoming a protocol rather than a currency in itself. The way that I think about it, I do imagine that in you know six, seven, eight years, the world's largest currencies will be the dollar, the yen, the yuan, the euro, the British pound, and a cryptocurrency that none of us have heard of right now. I think that there's a, a great case to be made for a global cryptocurrency. I don't think it's going to be Bitcoin, though. And I don't think it's going to be Bitcoin because of a lot of the flaws built into its design, which I think you know, are consistent with the values of the founders of Bitcoin, but which make government hostile to it. So for example, it's pseudonymity. In order, I think, for a cryptocurrency to really become global, it has to, it has to actually be the opposite. It has to be hyper-transparent who the owner is, rooted in real identity. Right now, crypto, um, one of its criticisms and one of the reasons why governments can be hostile to it is the perception that it enables sort of dirty transactions, illegal transactions. But in a, if crypto is built with hyper-transparency into its design, then it actually can have the opposite effect. I do think, though, with Bitcoin, uh, blockchain, which I know you've spoken about in other of your programs, I do think that the blockchain technology baked into the creation of Bitcoin, basically a distributed encrypted ledger system, I do think that that blockchain technology will increasingly become a protocol that we see in more and more of our computer science products. I find it really fascinating the way you say that there will be one big winner. And it's kind of like the search engines, that there was loads of search engines, but there was one big winner at the end, which is Google. There were 18 search engines before Google. And there are a gazillion little cryptocurrencies right now. But there is an inherently monopolistic property to currency. You don't want to be constantly operating in 14 different currencies. So I think that as soon as sort of the Google class cryptocurrency is built, I think that it can have global reach and global distribution. Moving on to another industry of the future that you've identified, you talk about the weaponization of code. And this often reminds me of the force, you know, in Star Wars, that you can use the force for good or bad. And it's the case with all these new technologies or new mindsets or new protocols. For all of this change driven by digitization, driven by the zeros and ones of computer code, it creates wonderful new efficiencies. So instead of having to go to the library and open books to retrieve information to learn anything like you had to do when I was a kid, now you can Google it. Uh, instead of having to spend a euro per minute to make a phone call, uh, an international phone call, eh, now it's worth almost nothing over our mobile phones. 
But for everything that we do digitize, it creates, you know, security challenges. And, you know, I, I, I think that the weaponization of code is the most significant development in conflict since the weaponization of fissile material. The difference being the creation of a nuclear arm, a nuclear weapon, requires access to the scarcest of scarce scientific talents and transuranium elements, whereas the creation of a cyber weapon has a much lower barrier to entry. So for all of the convenience and all of the well-being that is created by digitization, there is a bit of downside, and it largely comes from the weaponization of this digital space. If people are thinking about roles for the future, you say a cybersecurity specialist is an essential member on any board, let alone any organization today. If you want 30 years of guaranteed employment, get some cybersecurity skills. I mean, every board of directors should have somebody on it with expertise in cyber. Every executive team needs somebody on with expertise in cyber. And every organization needs a cybersecurity strategy or cybersecurity team. Uh, this is a case where the talent just hasn't been developed to meet the massive need. So for all of you parents with kids who are 13, 14, 15 years old, and you're like, oh, what are, what are they going to do? What, what can they study to have sort of a safe economic future? Get them to study cybersecurity. Also, Maybe something like the arts as well. It's not just one discipline. It's multidisciplinary skills that are really important. Yeah. So if you say the question, all right, I don't want to just have a job for 30 years, but I want to be a leader. I want to, I, you know, I want to have some mobility. I want to not just have 30 hours of a middle-class wage, but I want to be somebody who's imagining and inventing the future. Then you have to go beyond science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The real leaders in today and tomorrow's world are interdisciplinary learners. It's people who combine an aptitude for things that are technological or scientific, but combine that with expertise in something we associate with the humanities, whether it's communication skills, uh, emotional intelligence, an understanding of behavioral psychology or economics. If you're able to combine a deep skill in the humanities with a deep skill in something scientific or technological, you're positioned not just to compete in tomorrow's world, but to lead in tomorrow's world. Fantastic. And we might come back to education as well, because you do address this as a father of three yourself. But it'd be great in the current climate and your experience in government as well to mention election tampering. And here you give the example at the time, which was Ukraine. One of the really tragic aspects of digitization has been the degree to which people who want to undermine our democracy can. And I first saw this in Ukraine. Ukraine has always been sort of the testing ground for Russia's for Russia, whether it's through physical invasions or whether it's through cyber invasions. And so Russia had Russia was cyber attacking Ukraine and undermining its elections. Uh, years before it got involved in Brexit and years before it got involved in the U.S. presidential election. Um, you know, we, we have to make sure that our institutions uh, and our elections are wired in a way that, that it guards against foreign interference. 
Yeah, and you bring this also to the private sector as well, and I and you pose a really fascinating question. And I love hearing these kind of questions and people in government asking these in the Situation Room in the White House, for example, that when there's been cyber attacks on Silicon Valley giants in the past, they approached the presidential administration to raise awareness. But what if they retaliated is the question you ask. What if they went and they counterattacked and they launched an attack upon? That's trouble. Yeah. That could be seen as a, an act of war. And then when you think about war, you always think about that being between countries, right? What is a war? A war is, some, is, a, is a conflict between a country and a country. But what if there was a war between a country and a company? I remember years ago, when Google was cyber attacked by China, what if instead of picking up the phone and calling the White House, the executives at Google said, okay, China, you cyber attacked us. Well, we're Google and we've got great engineers. We're now going to cyber attack you. We're going to tr- steal your intellectual property. We're going to turn off your electrical grid. We're going to use all of the engineering talent at Google to attack you. Imagine that. Imagine a war, not between countries, but between countries and companies. That might seem ridiculous, but it's not. Um, it could absolutely happen. And that's a, that's a world that we aren't quite prepared for. We don't have a set of rules for that yet, do we? And you give the example here of Sony and the slap on the wrist from Obama to the attackers, the cyber attackers of Sony. Right. You know, North Korea. Cyber attacked Sony, first because there are always hostilities between North Korea and Japan, and Sony is a Japanese company. But then there was a a movie made by Sony, an American movie, a Hollywood movie uh, made by Sony Pictures that made fun of North Korea and which actually included an assassination of its leader. And so North Korea cyber attacked Sony and did an enormous amount of damage. Um, to Sony. Obama, you know, sort of gave North Korea a little slap on the wrist. But if Sony had said, you know what, I'm sorry, that's not enough. We are now going to try to destroy the digital infrastructure of Pyongyang. That would be really interesting. And I wonder what the North Koreans would have done about it. We haven't seen this happen yet, but it certainly could. Stranger things have happened. I thought about how these dystopian topics that we talk about, the positive and the negative. So genomics, for example, you mix genomics with bodyguards, for example. And what I mean here is if you can take the DNA sample of a target, you can then attack them in a different way. That's not a sniper hiding on the roof. You can attack them and you can attack their health directly. That's exactly right. I mean, if there is a digital database of our genetic material, then the ability to build a weapon uh, that can sort of attack you at the cellular level is not inconceivable. And if for p- people who think that this is far-fetched, well, go back and think about the U.S. presidential election. I mean, the, the idea that a foreign country of lower standing, like Russia and weaker, could take the world's most powerful country, the United States, and help elect. Uh, a guy like Donald Trump president through a cyber attack, that would have seemed, you know, not even worth discussing five years ago, but it actually happened. So sometimes 
these worst case scenarios of sort of cyber dystopianism, sometimes it actually does happen. And we're living with the consequences of that here in the United States. And you do mention as well about your work with the Obama campaign and how big data played a massive role. And I thought it was fascinating, the story you told about the amount of subject lines that were tested, A, B tested. I was going to say A, B, C, D, E, F, G tested, but there was many, many more variations of a subject line to, to find out which one was the most effective. For us, it was it all seems like kids play today. Ten years ago, though, you know, when I was running technology policy for Obama's presidential campaign, this stuff was wildly innovative. And part of it is instead of saying, you know, oh, yeah, that's a real clever subject line, you know, we'd come up with dozens, you know, 50, 70, 80 subject lines for emails. And then we would test them all to see, you know, which had the open rates the highest and the respond rates the highest. And so we just mechanized, we mechanized things to a remarkable degree. Um, you know, the way we did it, it seemed absolutely harmless. But you can use those same tactics and those same capabilities for things that are harmful. One of the things this raises, and you talk about in depth in the book, is falling in love. The idea of falling in love being a very human thing, an emotional thing. And it seems like it should involve more human choice and less computer algorithm. Yet we're already seeding that and giving that job over to an algorithm. Because you said at the time of writing, a third of all marriages in the US begin with online dating. Isn't that crazy? I mean, look, I'm not saying it's bad. But one out of every three marriages in the U.S. start with an online match. I mean, that is fascinating, using algorithms to find your mate. Um, I look, I'm not going to say it's good. I'm not going to say it's bad. I just think it's fascinating. It does seem to me, though, that everything we surrender to algorithms we lose a little bit of life's serendipity. Now, there are certain things that I'm happy to surrender to, you know, to algorithms. Um, but there are other things that are different. Um, and, you know, it's a third of all marriages in the U.S. start with online dating. You know, we're getting to the point now where, you know, you, we, you literally can have computer programs identify, you know, the, the outfit that is most likely to get a girl to like you. Um, based on the what the girl's preferences are through her social networks. I mean, it's fascinating, the application of this stuff, for both good and bad. Our ignorance, for the want of a better word, of handing over our data and being unaware or not caring of what's done with it. And you raised another brilliant question, which is, we should, or should we, have a chat before the birds and bees chat with our children about the big data chat? Exactly right. I mean, look, when I was a kid and I would go, you know, I was again in the in the hills of coal country. You know, I'd run outside with my friends, we'd be on bikes. We would not be sending or receiving any data. But my three children today, they're 16, 14 and 12 years old. They're like little beacons of data. You know, they and their little cell phones are pulsing all the bloody time. And so I do think that we need to be aware that you know, when you leave digital footprints, you can't erase them. And things that you do as a young person, I mean, look, I'm glad there wasn't Facebook when I was in university. I had lots of fun when I was in university. And I'm glad that 
it wasn't captured, um, <laughs> you know, by, you know, millions of cell phones that are out yeah. there. But, you know, my kids, that's not going to be the case. You know, the, the stupid things you do when you're 18 years old now could live with you until you're 68. And so the question is, how, are, how do you educate yourself and your children about living in a world not just of surveillance? When I think of surveillance, surveillance is, you know, being watched from above by like a government or a corporation. But what about surveillance being observed from below where every single solitary human being with a cell phone is able to capture video of you, is able to capture communications of you, is able to monitor what you're doing. That's a world of both surveillance and surveillance makes for an interesting mix. So dangerous for our children. And speaking of children, you, a former school teacher as well in, in very impoverished areas in Maryland, and to your credit as well, and I really respect that. And here you identify that the outputs of education do not match with the inputs of the private sector or the public sector or the work sector of the future. Yeah, I think there are countries that do this better than others. You know, I think, you know, I, I see a lot of what's happening in Scandinavia and Norway in particular and think it's very strong. I see a lot of what's happening in places in East Asia like Singapore, and I see them reforming their education such that the outputs of the education system do map to the inputs of where private sector hiring is going to be and where tomorrow's world is. But you look at what's taking place in Scandinavia, and you then compare it with what's going on in some of Mediterranean Europe, like in Italy, where you walk into a classroom and... You know, it's 2019, but it's no different than it was in 1919 or 1819. In the U.S., frankly, for our, our young kids, it's more like 1819 and 1919. You know, if, if, we aren't, if we aren't changing education to tomorrow's world, um, we're doing our children a real disservice. We know more about how children learn than we knew 30 years ago. We know where the jobs of the future are going to be, but we continue to skill people for industrial age jobs. Adapt or perish, was ever thus. Yeah, and that idea of interdisciplinary skills are really important. But generally, if we were stuck in an elevator and I was turned to you and I went, Alec, I have two kids. What should they be studying for the future? What industry should they be looking at? What would you say? Well, I'd say a couple things. I would say, first of all, in the same way in which everybody has to learn how to read and write, even if they aren't going to become a journalist or author, and everybody has to learn arithmetic, mathematics, even if they aren't going to become an accountant, so too, I think everybody should learn the basics of computer code. Because computer code is the alphabet that much of the future is going to be written in. So I think a basis in computer science is important. I also think, though, that that an understanding of emotional intelligence, behavioral psychology, and things like that are more important because in a world of zeros and ones where software is growing more powerful, that which makes us most human actually becomes more important than ever. So it's the combination of literacy and things that are technical with a real humanism that I think is going to is going to create the most resilient people for tomorrow's world. 
I'd love to finish on that really positive note about being more human in the world that's become technologically less human. But if we're stuck in the lift now, so I have a chance to ask you another question. And this one is one that you get asked all the time. And we have a lot of listeners in policymaking countries, in the EU, for example. And this question often comes up, and I hear it too, and it's, we want to create our own Silicon Valley. What are the ingredients we need? I would say don't try to recreate Silicon Valley. There's only one Silicon Valley. And that Silicon Valley is the byproduct of 60 years, 60, 60 years of investment, a world class, multiple world-class universities, um, and an ecosystem that's been decades in the development. Instead of just looking at Silicon Valley um, and saying, how can create that? What I believe is that you can create your own version of it by looking at what your strongest skills are, where the domain expertise exists, where you live, whether it's in agriculture, mining, data analytics, what, whatever it is, and going deep on that with a digital component. You know, that, that's my strong view. But I think the idea of copying Silicon Valley has never worked. If you look at the examples of places that have created their own very successful culture um, in entrepreneurship other than Silicon Valley, places like Israel, it's not been because they've copied things. It's been because they've figured out what their core aptitudes are, and then they've substantially invested in that and in creating the conditions that enable entrepreneurship like access to high-risk early-stage capital and access to markets. One final line that I pulled from the book, Alec, was this. The 21st century is a terrible time to be a control freak. Future growth depends on empowering people. I thought that was such a powerful line. Well, thank you. You know, look, I think that the principal political and economic binary of the 20th century was left versus right. The political left versus the political right. In today's world, I think the world is less about left versus right than it is open versus closed. You know, if you think about Brexit, I don't think about that as being a struggle between the political left and the political right. I think it's a struggle between open and closed. And I do believe that those states and societies that most orient themselves toward openness are going to be those that compete and succeed the most effectively. And by openness, I don't just mean the flow of people and capital. I also mean upward economic and social mobility is not just constrained to elites. It means that social and cultural norms are not set by central authorities. And it means that we're rights respecting religious minorities, sexual minorities, women, and others. I think that the states and societies that do the most to tilt toward openness will be where the innovators congregate. It's already happening, and I think that that will only continue. Well, that's a beautiful way to end today's show. Alec, if people want to find you, where can they find out more about you, the book, etc.? You can find the book just about anywhere. Look on Amazon, The Industries of the Future by Alec Ross. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Alec J. Ross. New York Times bestselling author of The Industries of the Future, Alec Ross. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been fun.